Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Part 2 The third day's post brought me a most impertinent letter from a person with whom I was totally unacquainted. He described himself as the acting partner of our man of business, our dear pig-headed old Gilmore, and he informed me that he had lately received, by the post, a letter addressed to him in Miss Halcombe's handwriting. On opening the envelope, he had discovered to his astonishment that it contained nothing but a blank sheet of notepaper, This circumstance appeared to him so suspicious as suggesting to his restless legal mind that the letter had been tampered with, that he had at once written to Miss Halcombe and had received no answer by return of post. In this difficulty, instead of acting like a sensible man and letting things take their proper course, his next absurd proceeding, on his own showing, was to pester me by writing to inquire if I knew anything about it. What the deuce should I know about it? Why alarm me as well as himself? I wrote back to that effect. It was one of my keenest letters. I have produced nothing with a sharper epistolary edge to it, since I tendered his dismissal in writing to that extremely troublesome person, Mr. Walter Hartwright. My letter produced its effect. I heard nothing more from the lawyer. This, perhaps, was not altogether surprising, but it was certainly a remarkable circumstance that no second letter reached me from Marianne, and that no warning signs appeared of her arrival. Her unexpected absence did me amazing good. It was so very soothing and pleasant to infer, as I did, of course, that my married connections had made it up again. Five days of undisturbed tranquility, of delicious single blessedness, quite restored me. On the sixth day, I felt strong enough to send for my photographer and to set him at work again on the presentation copies of my art treasures, with a view, as I have already mentioned, to the improvement of taste in this barbarous neighborhood. I had just dismissed him to his workshop and had just begun coquetting with my coins when Lewis suddenly made his appearance with a card in his hand. "'Another young person,' I said, I won't see her. In my state of health, young persons disagree with me, not at home. It is a gentleman this time, sir. A gentleman, of course, made a difference. I looked at the card. Gracious heaven, my tiresome sister's foreign husband, Count Fosco. Is it necessary to say what my first impression was when I looked at my visitor's card? Surely not. My sister, having married a foreigner, there was but one impression that any man in his senses could possibly feel. Of course, the Count had come to borrow money of me. Louis, I said, do you think he would go away if you gave him five shillings? Louis looked quite shocked. He surprised me inexpressibly by declaring that my sister's foreign husband was dressed superbly and looked the picture of prosperity. Under these circumstances, my first impression altered to a certain extent. 
I now took it for granted that the Count had matrimonial difficulties of his own to contend with, and that he had come, like the rest of the family, to cast them all on my shoulders. Did he mention his business? I asked. Count Fosco said he had come here, sir, because Miss Halcombe wasn't able to leave Blackwater Park. Fresh troubles, apparently, not exactly his own, as I had supposed, but dear Mary Anne's. Troubles, anyway. Oh, dear. Show him in, I said resignedly. The Count's first appearance really startled me. He was such an alarmingly large person that I quite trembled. I felt certain that he would shake the floor and knock down my art treasures. He did neither the one nor the other. He was refreshingly dressed in summer costume. His manner was delightfully self-possessed and quiet. He had a charming smile. My first impression of him was highly favorable. It is not creditable to my penetration, as the sequel will show, to acknowledge this. But I am a naturally candid man, and I do acknowledge it notwithstanding. "'Allow me to present myself, Mr. Fairley,' he said. "'I come from Blackwater Park, and I have the honor and the happiness of being Madame Fosco's husband. Let me take my first and last advantage of that circumstance by entreating you not to make a stranger of me. I beg you will not disturb yourself. I beg you will not move.' "'You are very good,' I replied. "'I wish I was strong enough to get up. "'Charmed to see you at Limeridge. "'Please take a chair.' "'I am afraid you are suffering today,' said the Count. "'As usual,' I said, "'I am nothing but a bundle of nerves "'dressed up to look like a man. "'I have studied many subjects in my time,' "'remarked this sympathetic person. "'Among others, the inexhaustible subject of nerves. "'May I make a suggestion?' "'at once the simplest and the most profound. "'Will you let me alter the light in your room?' "'Certainly, if you will be so very kind "'as not to let any of it in on me.' "'He walked to the window. "'Such a contrast to dear Marianne, "'so extremely considerate in all his movements. "'Light,' he said, in that delightfully confidential tone, "'which is so soothing to an invalid, "'is the first essential.' "'Light stimulates, nourishes, preserves. "'You can no more do without it, Mr. Fairley, "'than if you were a flower. "'Observe, here where you sit, "'I close the shutters to compose you. "'There, where you do not sit, "'I drop the blind and let in the invigorating sun. "'Admit the light into your room "'if you cannot bear it on yourself. "'Light, sir, is the grand decree of providence. "'You accept providence with your own restrictions.' "'except light on the same terms. "'I thought this very convincing and attentive. "'He had taken me in up to that point about the light. "'He had certainly taken me in. "'You see me confused,' he said, returning to his place. "'On my word of honor, Mr. Fairley, "'you see me confused in your presence. "'Shocked to hear it, I am sure. "'May I inquire why? "'Sir,' "'Can I enter this room, where you sit a sufferer, "'and see you surrounded by these admirable objects of art, "'without discovering that you are a man whose feelings "'are acutely impressionable, "'whose sympathies are perpetually alive? "'Tell me, can I do this?' 
If I had been strong enough to sit up in my chair, I should, of course, have bowed. Not being strong enough, I smiled my acknowledgments instead. It did just as well. We both understood one another. "'Pray, follow my train of thought,' continued the Count. "'I sit here, a man of refined sympathies myself, "'in the presence of another man of refined sympathies also. "'I am conscious of a terrible necessity "'for lacerating those sympathies "'by referring to domestic events of a very melancholy kind. "'What is the inevitable consequence? "'I have done myself the honor of pointing it out to you already. "'I sit confused.' Was it at this point that I began to suspect he was going to bore me? I rather think it was. Is it absolutely necessary to refer to these unpleasant matters, I inquired? In our homely English phrase, Count Fosco, won't they keep? The Count, with the most alarming solemnity, sighed and shook his head. Must I really hear them? He shrugged his shoulders. It was the first foreign thing he had done since he had been in the room, and looked at me in an unpleasantly penetrating manner. My instincts told me that I had better close my eyes. I obeyed my instincts. Please break it gently, I pleaded. Anybody dead? Dead, cried the Count, with unnecessary foreign fierceness. Mr. Fairley, your national composure terrifies me. "'In the name of heaven, what have I said or done "'to make you think me the messenger of death?' "'Pray, accept my apologies,' I answered. "'You have said and done nothing. "'I make it a rule in these distressing cases "'always to anticipate the worst. "'It breaks the blow by meeting it halfway, and so on. "'Inexpressibly relieved, I am sure, "'to hear that nobody is dead. "'Anybody ill?' "'I opened my eyes and looked at him.' Was he very yellow when he came in, or had he turned very yellow in the last minute or two? I really can't say, and I can't ask Lewis, because he was not in the room at the time. Anybody ill, I repeated, observing that my national composure still appeared to affect him. That is part of my bad news, Mr. Fairley. Yes, somebody's ill. Grieved, I am sure. Which of them is it? To my profound sorrow, Miss Halcombe, perhaps you were in some degree prepared to hear this. Perhaps when you found that Miss Halcombe did not come here by herself, as you proposed, and did not write a second time, your affectionate anxiety may have made you fear that she was ill. I have no doubt my affectionate anxiety had led to that melancholy apprehension at some time or other, but at the moment my wretched memory entirely failed to remind me of the circumstance. However, I said yes, in justice to myself. I was much shocked. It was so very uncharacteristic of such a robust person as dear Marianne to be ill that I could only suppose she had met with an accident, a horse or a false step on the stairs or something of that sort. "'Is it serious?' I asked. "'Serious beyond a doubt,' he replied. "'Dangerous, I hope and trust not.' Miss Halcombe unhappily exposed herself to be wetted through by a heavy rain. The cold that followed was of an aggravated kind, and it has now brought with it the worst consequence. Fever. When I heard the word fever, and when I remembered at the same moment that the unscrupulous person who was now addressing me 
had just come from Blackwater Park. I thought I should have fainted on the spot. "'Good God,' I said, "'is it infectious?' "'Not at present,' he answered, with detestable composure. "'It may turn to infection, but no such deplorable complication had taken place when I left Blackwater Park. "'I have felt the deepest interest in the case, Mr. Fairley. "'I have endeavoured to assist the regular medical attendant in watching it, "'except my personal assurances of the uninfectious nature of the fever when I last saw it. "'Except his assurances?' I never was farther from accepting anything in my life. I would not have believed him on his oath. He was too yellow to be believed. He looked like a walking West Indian epidemic. He was big enough to carry typhus by the ton, and to dye the very carpet he walked on with scarlet fever. In certain emergencies, my mind is remarkably soon made up. I instantly determined to get rid of him. "'You will kindly excuse an invalid,' I said, "'May I beg to know exactly what the subject is "'to which I am indebted for the honour of your visit?' "'I fervently hoped that this remarkably broad hint "'would throw him off his balance, confuse him, "'reduce him to polite apologies. "'In short, get him out of the room. "'On the contrary, it only settled him in his chair. "'He became additionally solemn and dignified and confidential.' He held up two of his horrid fingers and gave me another of his unpleasantly penetrating looks. What was I to do? I was not strong enough to quarrel with him. Conceive my situation, if you please. Is language adequate to describe it? I think not. The objects of my visit, he went on, are numbered on my fingers. They are two. First, I come to bear my testimony with profound sorrow to the lamentable disagreements between Sir Percival and Lady Glyde. I am Sir Percival's oldest friend. I am related to Lady Glyde by marriage. I am an eyewitness of all that has happened at Blackwater Park. In those three capacities, I speak with authority, with confidence, with honorable regret. Sir, I inform you, as the head of Lady Glyde's family, "'that Miss Halcombe has exaggerated nothing "'in the letter which she wrote to your address. "'I affirm that the remedy which that admirable lady has proposed "'is the only remedy that will spare you the horrors of public scandal. "'A temporary separation between husband and wife "'is the one peaceable solution of this difficulty. "'Part them for the present, "'and when all causes of irritation are removed, "'I, who have now the honour of addressing you, I will undertake to bring Sir Percival to reason. Lady Glyde is innocent. Lady Glyde is injured. But, follow my thought here, she is, on that very account, I say it with shame, the cause of irritation while she remains under her husband's roof. No other house can receive her with propriety but yours. I invite you to open it. Cool. Here was a matrimonial hailstorm pouring in the south of England, and I was invited, by a man with fever in every fold of his coat, to come out from the north of England and take my share of the pelting. I tried to put the point forcibly, just as I have put it here. The Count deliberately lowered one of his hard fingers, kept the other up, and went on, rode over me, as it were, without even the common coach-man-like attention of crying high, "'before he knocked me down. "'Follow my thought once more, if you please,' he resumed. 
"'My first object you have heard. "'My second object in coming to this house "'is to do what Miss Halcombe's illness "'has prevented her from doing for herself. "'My large experience is consulted "'on all difficult matters at Blackwater Park, "'and my friendly advice was requested "'on the interesting subject of your letter to Miss Halcombe. "'I understood at once, for my sympathies are your sympathies,' "'why you wish to see her here "'before you pledged yourself to inviting Lady Glyde. "'You are most right, sir, "'in hesitating to receive the wife "'until you are quite certain "'that the husband will not exert his authority to reclaim her. "'I agree to that. "'I also agree that such delicate explanations "'as this difficulty involves are not explanations "'which can be properly disposed of by writing only. "'My presence here, to my own great inconvenience,' "'is the proof that I speak sincerely. "'As for the explanations themselves, "'I, Fosco, I, who know Sir Percival "'much better than Miss Halcombe knows him, "'affirm to you, on my honour and my word, "'that he will not come near this house "'or attempt to communicate with this house "'while his wife is living in it. "'His affairs are embarrassed. "'Offer him his freedom "'by means of the absence of Lady Glyde. "'I promise you he will take his freedom,' and go back to the continent at the earliest moment when he can get away. Is this clear to you as crystal? Yes, it is. Have you questions to address to me? Be it so, I am here to answer. Ask, Mr. Fairley, oblige me by asking to your heart's content. He had said so much already in spite of me, and he looked so dreadfully capable of saying a great deal more also in spite of me, "'that I declined his amiable invitation in pure self-defense. "'Many thanks,' I replied. "'I am sinking fast. "'In my state of health I must take things for granted. "'Allow me to do so on this occasion. "'We quite understand each other. "'Yes, much obliged. "'I am sure for your kind interference. "'If I ever get better and ever have a second opportunity "'of approving our acquaintance.' "'He got up. I thought he was going. No, more talk, more time for the development of infectious influences. In my room, too. Remember that, in my room. One moment yet, he said. One moment before I take my leave. I ask permission at parting to impress on you an urgent necessity. It is this, sir. You must not think of waiting till Miss Halcombe recovers before you receive Lady Glyde. Miss Halcombe has the attendance of the doctor, of the housekeeper at Blackwater Park, and of an experienced nurse as well, three persons for whose capacity and devotion I answer with my life. I tell you that. I tell you also that the anxiety and alarm of her sister's illness has already affected the health and spirits of Lady Glyde, and has made her totally unfit to be of use in the sick room. Her position with her husband grows more and more deplorable and dangerous every day, if you leave her any longer at Blackwater Park, you do nothing whatever to hasten her sister's recovery, and at the same time you risk the public scandal, which you and I, and all of us, are bound in the sacred interests of the family to avoid. With all my soul, I advise you to remove the serious responsibility of delay from your own shoulders by writing to Lady Glyde to come here at once." Do your affectionate, your honorable, your inevitable duty, and whatever happens in the future, no one can lay the blame on you. 
I speak from my large experience. I offer my friendly advice. Is it accepted? Yes or no? I looked at him, merely looked at him, with my sense of his amazing assurance, and my dawning resolution to ring for Lewis and have him shown out of the room expressed in every line of my face. It is perfectly incredible, but quite true, that my face did not appear to produce the slightest impression on him. Born without nerves, evidently born without nerves. "'You hesitate,' he said. "'Mr. Fairley, I understand that hesitation. "'You object. "'See, sir, how my sympathies look straight down into your thoughts. "'You object that Lady Glyde is not in health "'and not in spirits to take the long journey from Hampshire "'to this place by herself.' Her own maid is removed from her, as you know, and of other servants fit to travel with her from one end of England to another, there are none at Blackwater Park. You object, again, that she cannot comfortably stop and rest in London on her way here, because she cannot comfortably go alone to a public hotel where she is a total stranger. In one breath I grant both objections. In another breath I remove them. Follow me, if you please, for the last time. It was my intention, when I returned to England with Sir Percival, to settle myself in the neighborhood of London. That purpose has just been happily accomplished. I have taken for six months a little furnished house in the quarter called St. John's Wood. Be so obliging as to keep this fact in your mind, and observe the program I now propose. Lady Glyde travels to London, a short journey. I myself meet her at the station— I take her to rest and sleep at my house, which is also the house of her aunt. When she is restored, I escort her to the station again. She travels to this place, and her own maid, who is now under your roof, receives her at the carriage door. Here is comfort consulted. Here are the interests of propriety consulted. Here is your own duty, duty of hospitality, sympathy, protection, to an unhappy lady in need of all three, "'smoothed and made easy from the beginning to the end. "'I cordially invite you, sir, to second my efforts "'in the sacred interests of the family. "'I seriously advise you to write, by my hands, "'offering the hospitality of your house and heart "'and the hospitality of my house and heart "'to that injured and unfortunate lady "'whose cause I plead today.' "'He waved his horrid hand at me. "'He struck his infectious breast.' He addressed me oratorically as if I was laid up in the House of Commons. It was high time to take a desperate course of some sort. It was also high time to send for Lewis and adopt the precaution of fumigating the room. In this trying emergency, an idea occurred to me, an inestimable idea which, so to speak, killed two intrusive birds with one stone. I determined to get rid of the Count's tiresome eloquence and of Lady Glyde's tiresome troubles, by complying with this odious foreigner's request, and writing the letter at once. There was not the least danger of the invitation being accepted, for there was not the least chance that Laura would consent to leave Blackwater Park while Marianne was lying there ill. How this charmingly convenient obstacle could have escaped the officious penetration of the Count, it was impossible to conceive, but it had escaped him. My dread that he might yet discover it, if I allowed him any more time to think, stimulated me to such an amazing degree that I struggled into a sitting position 
seized, really seized, the writing materials by my side, and produced the letter as rapidly as if I had been a common clerk in an office. "'Dearest Laura, please come whenever you like. "'Break the journey by sleeping in London at your aunt's house. "'Grieve to hear of dear Marianne's illness. "'Ever affectionately yours.' "'I handed these lines at arm's length to the Count. "'I sank back in my chair. "'I said, excuse me, I am entirely prostrated. "'I can do no more. "'Will you rest and lunch downstairs? "'Love to you all and sympathy and so on. "'Good morning.' He made another speech. The man was absolutely inexhaustible. I closed my eyes. I endeavored to hear as little as possible. In spite of my endeavors, I was obliged to hear a great deal. My sister's endless husband congratulated himself and congratulated me on the result of our interview. He mentioned a great deal more about his sympathies and mine. He deplored my miserable health. He offered to write me a prescription— he impressed on me the necessity of not forgetting what he had said about the importance of light. He accepted my obliging invitation to rest and lunch. He recommended me to expect Lady Glyde in two or three days' time. He begged me my permission to look forward to our next meeting, instead of paining himself and paining me by saying farewell. He added a great deal more, which, I rejoice to think, I did not attend to at the time and do not remember now. I heard his sympathetic voice traveling away from me by degrees, but large as he was, I never heard him. He had the negative merit of being absolutely noiseless. I don't know when he opened the door or when he shut it. I ventured to make use of my eyes again after an interval of silence, and he was gone. I rang for Lewis and retired to my bathroom, Tepid water, strengthened with aromatic vinegar for myself and copious fumigation for my study, were the obvious precautions to take, and of course I adopted them. I rejoice to say they proved successful. I enjoyed my customary siesta. I awoke, moist and cool. My first inquiries were for the Count. Had we really got rid of him? Yes, he had gone away by the afternoon train. Had he lunched, and if so, upon what? "'entirely upon fruit tart and cream. "'What a man! What a digestion! "'Am I expected to say anything more? "'I believe not. "'I believe I have reached the limits assigned to me. "'The shocking circumstances which happened at a later period "'did not, I am thankful to say, happen in my presence. "'I do beg and entreat that nobody will be so very unfeeling "'as to lay any part of the blame on me. "'I did everything for the best.' I am not answerable for a deplorable calamity which it was quite impossible to foresee. I am shattered by it. I have suffered under it, as nobody else has suffered. My servant Lewis, who is really attached to me in his unintelligent way, thinks I shall never get over it. He sees me dictating at this moment with my handkerchief to my eyes. I wish to mention, in justice to myself, that it was not my fault, and that I am quite exhausted and heartbroken." Need I say more? Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. 
Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.